Good morning. Welcome for coming out to welcome and thank you for coming out to convocation on this cold gray morning. And thank you also to all of you who have already responded to the Qualtrics survey, to the Qualtrics survey that you received in campus mail, I mean email, from uh, the Convo Chapel Review Task Group. I'm curious, how many of you have already responded to that questionnaire? Okay, thanks. The rest of you add your voice, but wait till after Convo to, to respond to the survey, please. Now I invite you in this convocation to step back from your busy, busy schedules, from those pressing, big, integrative end of the semester assignments that you're getting in almost every class. Step back away from your schedule. Step back away from campus, away from the United States. Because today, we're going to hear about another part of the world, an important part of the world, the Middle East, from a speaker who has chosen to live there in a difficult situation for many years. And to introduce our speaker this morning is Les Gustafsson-Zook. Yes, he is the husband of Gwen. And he also works for Mennonite Central Committee, an international relief and development and peacemaking organization. So let's introduce our speaker. It's my pleasure to be here. Those of you that know the Mennonite Central Committee know that we are involved around the world, about 60 different countries doing relief work, so responding to natural disasters and unnatural disasters. We do development work, so involved with trying to help people that don't have it get access to water get access to food, have education that they need, also work with HIV and AIDS prevention, and we're involved with peacemaking, so involved with conflict resolution training and uh, group experiences where folks can get together and break down cultural um, uh, stereotypes and learn more about each other and, and in that way work towards making, building peace. I'm excited today that we have Sarah Adams with us. Sarah comes to us with a fair bit of experience from Mennonite Central Committee service. She's worked in Botswana, which is in one of the countries in Africa for three years. She was the HIV AIDS coordinator from in our offices in Akron, Pennsylvania for two years. She was in India, Nepal, and Afghanistan for two years. And most recently, she was in Lebanon for the last four years. She just got back about a month or so ago and has, is now living in Columbus, Ohio, or outside of Columbus, and is working with us in the Great Lakes region to uh, talk to people and share her experiences with the issue of Syria and how the refugees there came through Lebanon and her connections there. So. She's going to be here uh, in chapel this morning, but also giving opportunity to speak in a couple different classes. You might see her more than once, so if, if you have questions, you'll have a chance to interact with her personally if you're involved with the Religion, Conflict, and Peace class, War, Peace, and Non-Resistance class, or in the Arabic class. She'll be in each of those this afternoon or this morning. So I'm excited that Sarah's here, and so I will turn... Oh, one other thing is that she's going to be um, having lunch in the cafeteria in the dining hall from uh, 12 o'clock on. So if you have interest in communicating with her there, you're welcome to join us at the table and, and have conversation there. So, Sarah?
Good morning, good to see so many people here. Um, I thought I'd start out by telling you a little more about myself and how I got started in this kind of work. Um, I went to school not too far from here at a Lutheran school called Wittenberg, if any of you have heard of Wittenberg. Uh, I studied international relations and I studied abroad my junior year, it was, in Kenya. And that gave me a taste for working internationally. Um, I remember, I kept a journal back then, I don't keep a journal now, but I remember having this one moment one day where I felt like God was calling me to service and I still have that journal entry in my journal. Um, so since that day, I've reflected a lot on how I can be part of a global community, part of the global church, and I was recommended to check out Mennonite Central Committee by some of my professors. They had a good respect for what MCC was doing around the world, and so I looked into it, and it seemed like a good fit. And as, as Les said, I did my first assignment in Botswana, but before I went with MCC, I actually did an AmeriCorps program for a year. I was in Columbus, Ohio doing uh, a city year program, it was called. And that was a really fascinating experience to work in the inner city there and look at some of the development issues going on there. Um, during my time in Botswana, I worked with different non-governmental groups in the country. Really interesting work. Botswana is a place where the government functions well. Um, it interacts well with, with the people of the country, so it was a great experience to see how development worked. Um, and then I did a master's degree in South Africa in community development because that's where my passion was, to work with communities and see how people build themselves up together. So I did that and then I was with MCC doing HIV AIDS work. Um, through that work I traveled around the world for about five years doing different programs in different places and I fell in love with India uh, while I was doing that work. So I went with MCC to India. And then from there, uh, I went to Lebanon and Syria. And when I first arrived in that part of the world, things were pretty calm, all things considered. And over the last four and a half years, there's just been a huge change in what's been going on um, in that part of the world. So I thought I would tell you some, some of my experiences today from working in Lebanon and Syria and what I've seen over the past, past few years. Uh, this is a photo from a place in Damascus. Some of you may have heard of it if you have followed the, the works of St. Paul in the Bible. This is, this is Straight Street in Damascus. Um, Damascus and the whole of Syria is a beautiful place, a place full of culture and history, um, a place where people have good education, good access to healthcare. Um, people lived well, coexisted, Muslims and Christians coexisted very well for, for centuries. Uh, things have all changed now, so that's what I'm going to talk about. But a good, good history there between different cultures. Let's see. Uh, this, is, this is one of my favorite spots in Damascus. This is the Umayyad Mosque. This is a mosque that in previous centuries was a church and still has a lot of significance both for the Christian and Muslim community in Syria. There's even a tower, one of the towers of this mosque is called the Jesus Tower, and people think this is where Jesus will return. So it uh, gets a lot of visitors for that reason. This is just a map of Syria. Um, the conflict started in the southern part of the country with some peaceful protests. 
Uh, those protests were not well received by the people in power. And so the, the conflict started almost right away. Um, this, the conflict in Syria came on the tail end of other conflicts in the region. Egyptian, the Egyptian uprising, Tunisia, Libya. Syria was on the tail end of those. And Syria has lasted longer than, than those other conflicts. So the, the Syrian conflict is still raging and actually getting worse by the day. The conflict has shifted to many different spots around the country as time has gone on. Um, as I said, it started in the south, but it moved to the central part of the country, and then it moved to the northern part to a city called Aleppo, which is really the industrial center of the country. So once the conflict hit this economic center, things really got, got worse for people in many ways. Uh, the country is made up of a majority Sunni Muslim population. About 80% of the people are Sunni Muslim. There are about 10% of the people that are Christians, and then another 10% that are from an Alawite sect, which is part of Shia, Shia Islam. So it is this Alawite group led by Assad, who has been controlling the government, and this is the, the people, the Sunni people especially, felt they didn't have a voice in the government, in the political structures, the military structures, the economic structures. So this is what led to the uprising. Now, the nature of the conflict has changed over time. It certainly started as an internal Syria conflict, but now it's really grown to have a lot of external influence. So on both the government side and the opposition side, we see a lot of foreign groups coming in to fight, to add weapons to the conflict, to provide other sort of fuel to the fire. So the Syrian people themselves have found this very discouraging um, because even though their relationships within Syria are still somewhat strong, the more external influence that comes in, the harder it is for people to work, work at their issues. Um, I wanna give you some examples of what's happened in Syria. This is a city called Homs, where a lot of the fighting happened. This photo was taken from one of the MCC partner churches, the Syrian Orthodox Church. The church happened to be on the front line between government forces and opposition forces, and this whole neighborhood was largely destroyed, so people have fled this area. Um, as you can see, buildings have been destroyed, um, infrastructure like electricity and water and things have been destroyed, hospitals have been destroyed, schools have been destroyed. Um, we have a Man, we do a food project, our, our agency does a food project in an area where people from homes fled. There was a man who used to own four restaurants in this city and now he's receiving food relief from one of our projects. So people have really suffered a great deal, um, especially economically as a result of this conflict. Uh, this is another impact of the conflict. Last winter, when there was not heating fuel available, people went to this national forest and started cutting down trees as a way to, to heat their homes. Um, these are some of the things that meet short-term needs but really have a long-term impact on the whole country. This is the city of Aleppo. This is the city I mentioned was the industrial center of the country. Uh, Aleppo has experienced total destruction. The city has been under siege, actually, for, for more than a year. Some people cannot leave their homes. They can't get access to food or water at times. 
Uh, but even in the midst of this, there are people who are trying to make a difference in their community. Uh, we work with some teenage boys who were frustrated because they had to stop going to school, but they've organized themselves into groups and some of the guys do garbage cleanup because something full, like collecting the garbage hasn't been happening. Other people do traffic monitoring to make sure the roads are, are as clear as they can be in the midst of the conflict. This is an example of one of the challenges now with education. Uh, I'm sure as students, you all can imagine that if you even miss a week or two weeks of class, it really sets you back quite a ways. So we have students now in Syria have missed a year or two years of class. And this is really scary, I think, for the country because it's such a well-educated society to think about what this lack of education is going to mean long-term for the country. Really scares people. This happens to be a photo in an area where lots of people have fled, so this school is quite overcrowded with, with students. And as you can see, they, they don't have heat in the school, so they, they wear their coats to class. Uh, another big challenge has been the loss of dignity that people have experienced. Syria is not a place that has experienced conflict like this in the past, so this is all new to people. It was a very self-sufficient country where people had a good standard of living and could meet their needs, had good jobs. Um, it's been very difficult for people to have to turn to others for help. There was a, a young man in northern Syria who hadn't taken, he had diabetes and he hadn't taken his medication for a few weeks, but he was too embarrassed to ask anyone for, for help to buy the new medication. Um, luckily, someone realized this and was able to go to him, but a lot of cases of people who've been ashamed to come forward and ask for help. Uh, this is a man who was shot. Um, it's a very interesting conflict because often now people don't know even who is in conflict with each other. So he was shot by a sniper and when he was asked, who did this to you? He said, I have no idea. I, I don't even know who was fighting in the area. I don't know who would have targeted me. This is a woman named Huda. She works with people that have come into her community. She's in a rather safe area, relatively speaking. So many people have fled to her area. And she has just turned her home into sort of a depot with clothing and towels and blankets and baby formula. And she's offering assistance to anyone who, who needs help. Uh, one of the stories she told me was of two young women who had been wandering for a couple of weeks before they found their way to this safe area. And the first thing she did to them was wash their hair and give them a haircut as a way to bring some dignity back to their lives after they had been moving around so much. This is a story just from about a month ago. This is a, a village that was attacked by external extremist groups that came in. I think the village had a somewhat strategic location next to a military area. So some of the opposition groups came in to take this village. Uh, about 2,500 families had to flee within a couple of days. Others were held hostage in their homes. Others were killed on the spot. And the, the, the community just experienced a great deal of trauma. This is another aspect of the conflict, the, the amount of trauma people are facing. Uh, the interesting thing about this story, though, was that this was a Christian village in the middle of a Sunni Muslim area, and it was their Sunni Muslim neighbors that were coming in in the middle of the night with their vehicles to try to take the, the Christian neighbors out to safety. This is a photo from that same village. Um, these, 
these priests were burying people who had died in the conflict. Um, it's, it's hard to think about how we, how we bury people and how we honor, honor our dead in the middle of a raging conflict. In this case, they didn't have enough coffins for everyone, so many of the people were just buried in blankets. Another thing that's caused a lot of trauma to the local community has been kidnappings. There have been hundreds and hundreds of kidnappings in Syria. Most of these are financially motivated, so a particular group will be looking for cash, maybe to finance their, their initiative, so they kidnap someone. Um, this is a photo of two bishops that were kidnapped in April, on April 22nd. The bishop on the left is a friend of mine. His name is Bishop Johanna Ibrahim and he had been to Beirut a couple days before he was kidnapped and we had spoken on the phone and made a plan to, to get together a few days later and then I learned that he had been kidnapped. Uh, this particular incident really struck a lot of fear into the Christians in Syria. Some of them felt it was a personal attack against their faith. So it caused not only fear, but it also caused some Christians to leave the country. So there's a, there's a real fear, because the Christian minority is so small, that if the Christians start leaving, actually the face of Syria will change somewhat because of shifting demographics. And it's interesting that as much as the Christians want to stay, their Muslim neighbors want them to stay. They see value in that interreligious, intercultural society, and they're working for ways to help, help people stay if they can. Uh, this, is, this is one of the bishops in Syria. This is a photo in the city of Homs. This is an orphanage that our organization has been working with. Um, the orphanage was destroyed. The bishop's home was next door. It was also destroyed. So he himself is a displaced person. He's had to move a couple of times to different villages. The interesting thing about him is that he has refused to leave his people. He's very concerned about his people, but also the, the role of moderate people in Syria, the role of moderate Muslims and Christians and he's trying as much as he can to stay himself and to encourage other people to stay in the country. Um, he, at any given time, has 30 to 40 people from his church that have been kidnapped. He does funerals almost every week, so he's really suffering a lot, but he's, he's sticking, sticking with the people there and trying to offer comfort and hope, even in the midst of this really complex situation. This is the school that I wanted to mention to you guys. This is a school in the city of Holmes, which has been, the city of Holmes has been devastated. So the school has very few students left. It went from 1,600 students down to 300 students. But this school was started more than 100 years ago. Uh, it was started by the church, but from its inception, it's been a place where different ethnicities and different religious groups have always attended. So it's been seen as a real center of learning, but also a center of hope and coexistence in that community. So even though the school only has 300 students now, they've made a point to keep the school open, and they've said even if we only had 10 students, we would keep the school open because the school symbolizes something to our community, and we don't want to lose that hope. We don't want to lose this normal place for kids to be able to go every day. So they're working hard to keep that school open. I want to mention a little bit about the situation of the, Lebanese, or the refugees in Lebanon, where I've been living. Um, there's many things that are driving people to leave these days. Certainly, you can imagine the destruction of their homes um, and just a general breakdown of services is causing people to leave. But there's also things like conscription into the army that are causing a lot of young men to leave. 
One of my friends recently left with his family. He had a 17-year-old son and a 20-year-old son and was really worried about them getting put into the army, so they were able to flee and get a visa to the US. Um, another friend of mine was just recently diagnosed with breast cancer, and they can't get medical treatment inside Syria, so she and her family moved to Lebanon where they could get medical treatment. So there's a number of things that are driving people to leave the country. Um, it's difficult to know when people leave sometimes where to go. Uh, there's many, many people coming to Lebanon. Lebanon has only four million people as a population, but they've welcomed one million refugees. So they've taken in just a huge number of people. From the beginning of the conflict, they've used the term guest to refer to these refugees that have come in. Um, and I think we would all welcome guests in our home for a week or two, but when it becomes two or three months or two or three years, the strain starts to come into play. So it's been really difficult over time for the Lebanese. Um, there's competition for basic resources like water. Uh, there's also competition for jobs. So the tensions start to grow between the host community and the refugee communities. One of the challenges when people leave is how they leave and what they take with them. And these are some women in Syria. These are some older women that actually couldn't make the trip. So their families left without them. Um, I, these women really touch my heart to think that they've sort of been left behind in the midst of this conflict. So we're trying to work to support people like this, um, injured people, older people, who, who aren't able to travel. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to know. Your whole life changes in an instant when you decide to leave the country. People leave not knowing if they'll ever come back. Uh, they don't know if they'll see their home again. They don't know if they'll see their families again. Um, one, of the, one of the women I met, well, one woman in Jordan, she didn't take anything with her but a few clothes. Uh, but the one thing she had with her was her students' school records because their education was so important to her that she kept those school records with her. Uh, in Lebanon, I met a woman who had just arrived the day before, and she was really sad because she had had to sell her refrigerator to get the bus fare to come to Lebanon. And this was a refrigerator that she had saved a couple of years to buy, and she just had to give that up. And to her, that symbolized giving up her, her family and her home, uh, and she was quite, quite upset by that. Other people try to sell jewelry or sell furniture or sell things they have and come to Lebanon. Um, one guy that, that I met, he was living in my area in Beirut. He um, had made some money and he was actually going back into Syria to visit his family and check on them there. And he had stuck the money down in his shoes. It wasn't even a nice pair of shoes. He thought that would be safe, but one of the guards really liked his shoes, so they stole his shoes. Um, and he lost all that money that he had saved for his family. It's, it's been interesting to see that some people actually are going back into Syria because it's so difficult to live as a refugee and the loss of dignity and the loss of their, their culture and their community is such a stress on people that they would rather be in the middle of the conflict than living outside of it in a, in a place they don't feel respected. So a number of people are going back into the country. <clears throat> This is an older woman I met who had come to Lebanon, and uh, she, her daughter said she's, she's just not happy there. She just sits on the floor all day um, and feels like she doesn't have anything to do. It's difficult to, to be a refugee. This is an example of the way refugees are living in Lebanon. Lebanon made a decision not to build refugee camps, which is different than Turkey and Jordan, who have built camps. 
Um, initially, this was, this was okay. This allowed people to integrate into the community in better ways, but it's become a strain with the mass numbers of people because there just aren't enough spaces for everyone. So this is a school that is being built um, and about 1,000 refugees set up camp in this school as a place to live. And for 1,000 people, they have just six toilets between them. So it's not a, very, um, not a very hygienic place to be either. Another challenge is the education system in Lebanon. Lebanon has a decent public education system, but it's not terribly well equipped to handle so many new students. So the, the government, in a way, generously offered that any Syrian students could enter the Lebanese public schools, but it turned out there were more Syrians than Lebanese in the schools when they opened this up. So it really didn't work so well to add all of these new students in. And the curriculum is different, the language is different. Um, they all speak Arabic, but in Lebanon, actually, a lot of the instruction is in English. And in Syria, the instruction is only in Arabic. So it was difficult for the Syrian students to, to come into the schools. These are two 17-year-old girls who had to drop out of school, uh, but they found a way to, to keep themselves busy. They're now volunteering with one of the MCC projects to help with the food distribution project that we're doing. Another challenge I mentioned is just access to water and very basic services. This is a photo from a community that has quite, quite poor refugees who can't afford housing, so they're living in tents. Uh, and they've had a lot of sickness in their community, a lot of challenges with water, with waste removal, um, rodents, a lot of rodents, and there's actually been children that have been bitten in the middle of the night by rodents that have gotten into the, the informal settlements. So it's a really difficult place to live. Uh, this is a photo, I wanna talk now a bit about sort of the conflict prevention work that's going on and, and the stories of, of peacemaking inside Syria. This is a photo from an area where we have a food project. Now this is an area near homes. So I mentioned homes was destroyed during the conflict and many of the people from homes fled to this particular area. Uh, the area has about tripled in size from the original population when they include all the displaced people that have arrived. One of the aspects of the conflict in, in Syria is that small incidents or small disagreements between people or small acts of violence suddenly blossom into really big acts of violence that overtake the whole community. So in this community, the community is working hard to look for those small instances before they become big. So they have teams of people that sort of monitor what's going on in the community and look for ways to approach people and address the conflict before it gets out of hand. So far, this has been working fairly well um, in most cases. There's also been a lot of people in Syria, millions I would say, um, that have refused to get involved in the violence. I think what we see in the media is, seems like the whole country is fighting each other on some level. But in reality, there are groups, certainly, that are fighting each other violently, but the majority, millions of people, are simply trying to get through their days, trying to feed themselves, trying to send their kids to school. Um, so there are many, many people who are rejecting arms, who are rejecting getting involved in different militias and getting involved in the conflict. There are a lot of important voices for moderation, even in the midst of the conflict. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, just check something. One of, 
One of the ways that we've been working as MCC is to try to um, do humanitarian aid in a way that also helps prevent conflict and build bridges across different groups of people. So we've been doing a lot of training on humanitarian aid and the principles of how to do that kind of work. And when we do this training, we try to bring together groups of different people. So let's say we train 25 people. We get people from different parts of Syria, different political spectrums, different religious backgrounds, and we bring them all together to train together and to think about these issues together so that they're, they're sort of looking forward with a common vision, uh, even though they come from very different backgrounds. And that, that seems to be working really well. This is a picture of one of our food projects. Um, it's interesting, we received a note from the local Muslim leader in this community because most of the food is going to Muslim people. But he said, we tell, we tell our people that this food comes from Christians and it comes from people in the West. And that has been a bridge that's been built uh, with the Western community, but also at the local level. It helps people to see the support in a different way. Um, a challenging thing in Syria right now is that many people are using aid in sort of a political way to advance their own agendas, and that is not, as we know, how humanitarian aid should be used. So it's important, I think, that we're clear about the aid we're giving and why we're giving it and how we're giving it so that everyone feels, feels open about that. Um, another thing that MCC has done is to send in relief buckets. Maybe some of you at some point in your life have packed a relief bucket. Um, blankets and other supplies. It's been interesting in Syria because of the total scale of destruction, a lot of the factories have been destroyed. So um, people cannot buy blankets locally or clothing locally or towels locally. So part of what we're doing is sending, sending in that kind of support. This is another aspect of something happening at the local level. Uh, the relationships in the local communities are still quite strong. And this is an example of that. This is an interfaith prayer service that happened recently in northern Syria. Um, the, the local leaders have, thought, have felt it's really important to, to show that they are unified to their communities as a way to help those relationships. So this was a prayer service packed full with hundreds of people from all different faith backgrounds. Uh, this is a, a young woman on the right named Rana. We sent six students this summer to Eastern Mennonite University to their summer peacebuilding institute. And we tried to send a team of mixed people, people from very different political backgrounds, people from different religious backgrounds. And they were all committed to nonviolence, so they went to this training together, and now they've come back into their communities and they're doing initiatives in their own communities. So a couple of the students are focusing on trauma healing, because of the extreme level of trauma, people are having difficulty even functioning and living together in community. So these, these two, two people in the south are working on trauma. This woman on the right is named Rana. Uh, this is at one of the trainings we did. She's working on reconciliation initiatives to bring people together who have had family members killed and to help them think about nonviolent ways to respond to the violence that they've experienced. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of really neat work going on from, from young people throughout the country, really creative initiatives that I don't think we ever hear about in the news. So um, it's important to know that they do exist, even, even if we don't hear about them. Um, let's see. This is a guy I wanted to mention. This is my friend Ali on the right. He was actually in Canada earlier this year for a training also with MCC. He has a challenging job. He's in Lebanon. 
He works for an agency that is looking at the relationships between the host community and the refugee communities. So he goes and visits with the refugees. This is a refugee family um, from Syria. Seven people live in this very small room. He, he listens to them, he tries to understand what their challenges are, what the conflicts are that they have in the community, and then he also meets with his Lebanese neighbors and tries to understand what their challenges are. And then he designs projects, um, maybe a picnic, maybe a children's event, maybe a community cleanup event, where people can come together from both communities and try to better understand, understand each other and work together. One of the big challenges, I think, in this conflict has been that it's not a conflict that has ended yet. Often something happens, like we just had this massive typhoon, which was terribly destructive, um, but the typhoon ends, and then you start thinking about the future and rebuilding and how you do that. The challenge in this conflict is that it hasn't ended, um, but we can't stop thinking about the future in the midst of the conflict, or the whole country would just sort of collapse. Um, so we're working at different education initiatives and community initiatives, even in the midst of the conflict. This is a preschool that was started. Um, Palestinians in Lebanon, who are themselves refugees, have really welcomed a lot of the Syrian refugees. So this is a joint initiative between Palestinian women and Syrian women to start a preschool in their community. Just want to end with a, a couple, oh, this is also some education work. This is in Syria and Damascus. Has anyone ever packed a school kit for MCC? Okay. Oh, wow, lots of you, okay. Um, these school kits arrived just in time. They arrived the week school started, so these kids were happy. Um, one of the things that one of the bishops told me was that when you, when you visit us and remember us, we feel like we're still alive. A lot of the people in Syria now feel like they've been forgotten. Um, MCC tries to offer sort of our support of the international church, the global church, but also things like blankets that are very tangible and show the love and care of, of the global church for, for that. Um, this is one of the bishops that we work with. This is Bishop Mata, and he's a very inspiring guy. The people that, that are in Syria are incredibly courageous, but they're also incredibly compassionate and faithful people to stay in the midst of this conflict. And Bishop Mata is just an example of one of the people doing this. As I said, it's really important that people with voices of moderation like this stay behind to, to keep that strong base there in the community and not let these sort of extremist influences take over this beautiful country. Um, one of, the, one of the, the pastors that we work with, he's from an Armenian evangelical church, he described the situation and the need for assistance by saying that we've stumbled a bit in Syria, but we're a people who survive and have a long history, so we just, we need a hand at this moment in order to get through this phase, um, but hopeful, hopeful that they'll come through on the other side. This is a woman I met who symbolizes that to me. She was a farmer in Syria, and she can't wait to get back to Syria. She says, in Syria, I was the queen of my farm. Um, she just felt like a queen there. And in Lebanon, she has nothing and owns nothing. And many, many millions of people like her can't wait to get home, to start rebuilding their communities, to start living their lives again. So there's still a lot of hope, even in the midst of, of the conflict. 
Uh, I just wanted to leave you with a few simple ideas if you're interested in getting involved yourself. Um, as you saw in the photos, MCC is still sending a lot of kits and supplies, so it's easy to put together some kits to drop off at the MCC office. Uh, there's things like education programs, schools that we're funding. If you're interested in, in helping people maintain access to education, there's ways that you can support that. A big thing that the partners in Syria are requesting is our voice in advocacy. The U.S. actually has played a large role in the conflict and has a large role to play to end the conflict, I think. So we have a website for the MCC Washington office that has sample letters and things that you can send to, to encourage our government to uh, stop its role in the conflict. And finally, there's always requests for prayer from our partners across the religious spectrum. Prayer is an important um, important way for them to maintain hope in the midst of this conflict. So thanks for the chance to, to share their stories with you.